Episode 21.51, I think. 51 or 50? 51. Not 5150, that'd be crazy. No, it would not be Yacht Rock either. But <laughs> then again, sometimes we aren't either. Right. This is a Yacht Rock podcast, though. Mostly. Called Out of the Main. Right. Sometimes a Yacht Rock podcast. And uh, that 51 is significant because that means we are to the end of a season here. Hard to believe. Yeah. I know. It's hard to believe yeah. we made it this long. I know, I know. It is true. Well, it's time to, uh, well, what? Uh, I guess you can't put the boat away dirty, right? So you got to <laughs> scrape the barnacles and empty the bilge. So That's... I had this idea of, uh, I had all kinds of things in my notes that I'd collected that don't necessarily connect to or amount to an episode in and of themselves. So I've been collecting all these odds and ends, and I thought we'd go through these odds and ends. You haven't heard of what most of these are. Right. And so you're going to have to respond in real time and um, no editing. Well, all right. So before we shrink wrap the boat. Yes. Let's get into these odds and ends. I do have a couple. Okay. Uh, but let's start with yours because this was your brainchild. Yeah. So a couple interesting quotes to start off, two of the legends. I had uh, Someone had sent me this one from Steve Lukather, and it's dated about 1984. Hmm. So this goes kind of to a lot of what we've talked about with him getting the nickname Take Zero and uh, yep. some of the stuff with, that he's done for Lionel Richie. He says, usually I play my best stuff when I plug in and play right away. When it doesn't get so labored that I start getting in my own cliches, right? Mm -hmm. uh, when I get to the fifth take, I start repeating myself and getting hung up. But if I, as far as just going for it, I never think about it. I just do it. The more I think about it, the worse I play. Makes sense. I and think we found that to be true, that some of the stuff that is clearly just him ripping it is way better. Well, what is that outro solo with uh, Running with the Night? That yeah. was completely take zero. Right. That's better than the stuff he put on later in the... Yeah, and it's probably the not the only one that's kind of take zero. Yeah, so. for sure. Uh, David Foster has an interesting take on this. Um, he says, I think a bad singer can have a hit with a great song. I think a great singer cannot have a hit with a bad song. But I'll add that a great song can fail if it's poorly recorded and poorly produced, no matter who's singing it. So obviously he's talking about the importance of the song itself. Yep. That a great singer can't just sing anything and make you want to buy it. Say that last piece again. He said, okay, I'll read the whole thing one more time. Yeah. I think a bad singer can have a hit with a great song. Nickelback. Yeah, right. <laughs> I think a great singer cannot have a hit with a bad song. But I'd add that a great song can fail if it's poorly recorded and poorly produced, no matter who sings it. That's the last piece that I was right. focusing on, because obviously he's underscoring the importance of the producer as well. And the well, arranger. that's because he is one. <laughs> exactly my <laughs> point, yes. And sometimes I will add, God, I hope David Foster doesn't listen to this podcast. I hope he does. Sometimes a good producer can outproduce the quality of the song. I think that's probably true. I'm you can thinking of Celine it. Dion. I'm thinking of some Josh Groban. Yeah. There's a common uh, thread there. Right. Um, because sometimes the histrionics take away from the song. And then I end up not liking a perfectly good song because it's just like it's too theatrical. Mm. Or Again, there's a lot to like. Um, this isn't Yacht Rock, but My Heart Will Go On. It's a beautifully written song. Yeah. I can't right. get into it, though, because she's so over the top on it. And, mm. and she's a good singer. Right. So what is the thing that fails that song to me it's the production but well anyway. <laughs> can't really say that song failed it might be the most successful single of all time but it failed in my mind, in your right? mind. Yeah. yeah 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 it is, <laughs> it is right yeah see they don't know what they're doing i know yeah um right. here here's a much longer 
extended story. This made its way around Facebook for a while. Greg Matheson, keyboard extraordinaire, is uh, an avid poster on Facebook talking about, tells a lot of stories about back in the day and his thoughts just in general on music. And he's a big advocate of playing together. Mm. Grooving together—that's his thing. He's—he's he's even got that like nickname or something on his Facebook post, like the Groove Master Greg Masson or something like that. Groove is is really big to him, and he tells this story. I remember this because it was in part in the Jeff Percaro book, mm. but Greg gets more extensive on it here, and he talks about the lesson that he learned from Jeff Percaro about groove. And we touched on this a little bit way, way back, but this is uh, a little better detail. So he's telling about this session where they have to get, um, they're working for an artist and they have to get the perfect take of each song. There's nine songs that they're going to do, but once they get the perfect take on each one, they have to go back and cut each one of those a half step below (laughs) and a half step up. Plus in pitch, right? right? Yep. Plus one BPM slower <laughs> on the click and one BPM higher on the click, which amounts to, uh, in terms of permutations, nine different versions for each song. Okay. So you're, now you're looking at trying to get eighty-one perfect takes over nine. And I won't check your math. So on that. yeah, he says by day three he gets you know quite bored and he just kind of his mind starts to wander and he decides, well, what would it be like if I decided to play more on the back of the beat? Well. That take didn't go well. They called for a break. And apparently Jeff Percaro sort of hunts him down. Where is Greg? Where is Greg? And comes up and gets in his face. And Greg's like, yeah, what's going on? What's going on? And he says, don't ever play on the backside of the beat again. Because that's where I go. And then I have to play even further back. And the whole thing falls apart. And so here's the lesson that Greg says he learned that day. Jeff said, here's what makes it groove. You play, Greg, where you feel it which is the center time, typically. Mm -hmm. Bass player is going to play it with his time. Percussionist is going to play it with his time. The guitar player will play it with his time in terms of relationship to that click. And uh, Jeff says that lets me put my snare drum on the backside of the click. Notice he says the snare drum, not the whole kit. Right, right? yeah. Which is interesting in and of itself. Yep. Um, So he says it's how our different combinations of grooves or the way that each person feels time weaving around a static click that comes together as one to make a groove. And it's that true pushing and pulling around that click of our own individual feels is what makes the groove work. Mm. And it kind of yeah. goes to the Steely Dan thing with the bringing in full bands. Right. Right? Because it's that combination that you couldn't just... If you're thinking of groove, and it is the way that players play together... How would you know that, well, I just need to replace the bass player and everything will happen, right? Because now suddenly you inject somebody new, that's going to force everybody else to adjust to that feel. So it isn't as simple as just saying, well, let's just, you know, plug in a different guy. Um, So Greg says, after all these years of thinking about what grooving hard means, it's not perfection. It's not us playing even perfectly together. But the magic groove happens when all of our personal, natural grooves merge together. Some are on the beat. Some are ahead of the beat and some are behind the beat, but there's a magical push and pull around an agreed upon tempo. Hmm. That's interesting. And very true. Very true. But I think what you don't get in today's music, if it's been overly quantized or if it's programmed into a machine, you don't get any of that stuff. 
right? No. Because everything's perfect, everything's right on the beat, and then there's a and sterility. And you can see it visually on a screen, and that's yeah. part of the problem. You can zoom in on waveforms and see where the hits are and see whether they're lined up or not. And all of a sudden that starts playing, you know, mental jujitsu in your brain, you know, where you're, you think, well, that obviously that hit is late, I need to fix it. Right. And the whole thing leads you into this rabbit hole of perfection, quote, mm-hmm. Right, but when we had Bill Schnee on, he said he would look at that. He would see things that are off, and he would want to leave it for the most part, even if you can fix it now. I know it's hard to resist that, though, when you see it, uh, I, because then you start hearing it more than you would otherwise. Right. I, you I know? can assume, yeah, that's true. Yep. So Greg goes on to say, now you have to have the right musicians, of course, to make this happen. But they're not playing in sync with each other; they're playing off each other. As he said, weaving around a tempo to set up this magical push and pull. But you have to practice. You have to listen and be able to adjust to the players around you. Uh, It's why some rhythm sections sound better than other rhythm sections. They're just listening to each other, and you have to have the right balance, the right push and pull. And those are the rhythm sections that groove the hardest. So we think of something like maybe Earth, Wind & Fire, where they've played together for so long, they know each other's nuances so well. Which is what makes this whole session thing so uh, such an anomaly because you're bringing in guys at 10 a.m. or whatever that maybe have played together, but as a group, as a fivesome or foursome, it's not like they play together all the time, and they have to get together and do this stuff on the spot, you know? But it goes even given that, that it's amazing that they were able to pull it off and they weren't, like you said, working together. It still goes back to, I think, at the heart of why this music that we're talking about is still so popular, because that's the way it was recorded. Yeah. It was real humans and human time, maybe not perfect. I still think mm-hmm. as amazing as uh, Rosanna is. Mm-hmm. I swear to God, all those little runs that, you know, the horn section and the guitar player yeah. and the drummer, it's not all perfect. I don't think so either. And I've tried to, like, figure out where it's, like, is it perfect? And I just can't hear it. It's not perfect, though. No. And that's what makes it so great. Yeah, I don't think you can ever replace the feel of you know, people playing together. Yeah. And that, and that goes to even if you're using real players, but you're building up one track at a time. Right. It's still not the same. It's better than if it's all programmed, yes. But it's still not the same as having it happen on the fly, like what Greg is talking about there. And if you want to compare and contrast, I think if you look at Gaucho and compare and contrast with Asia, you'll see exactly that, what you're exactly talking it. about. That is the night and day difference right there. Yep. Uh, one more thing before I turn it over to you, okay. if you have something, but because uh, this relates to that. Another thing that made its way around Facebook for a while, and you'll see how this relates, it's, um, it was not long after Chick Corea passed, hmm. that, uh, and this may have even been Greg that shared this initially, um, something that Chick Corea would, had typed up and would give out to musicians. I mean, it's actually typed up on typewriter <laughs> you know, it's a, it's a, it's that old. Probably goes back to the seventies, and it's just it's called cheap but good advice for playing music in a group by Chick Corea, and it's a one page bullet point thing. And I'll just hit on a couple of them, but you can see how it relates to the way musicians that we're talking about these session musicians in the yacht rock era played. Some are very very simple, and that that's they're almost so obvious that sometimes you see musicians that try so hard to be so great that they can't be because they're trying so hard to be so great, right? (laughs) Yeah. He says, play only what you hear. That's number one on the list. Play only what you hear. Hmm. Number two is if you don't hear anything, don't play anything. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Um, Don't let your fingers and limbs just wander. Place them on the instrument intentionally. Now, he's probably talking more keyboard, but I think that holds true for anything. Leave space, create space. 
intentionally create places where you don't play. Mm-hmm. We talk always about the space in Yacht oh, yeah. Rock, right? Make your sound blend and listen to the sound around you and adjust to the rest of the band in the room. Going back to the listening and playing together. Guide your choices of what to play by what you like, not by what you think someone else will like. Interesting. Yeah. Use contrast and balance. High, low, fast, slow, loud, soft, tense, relaxed, dense, sparse. Play to make other musicians sound good. Play things that will make the overall music sound good. And then one other that I'll hit, which he kind of touched on before, was create space, then play something in it. So it's all about intentionality. Yeah. It isn't just play everything you got. Right. True. You know, and this and is I one think, of the great soloists of all time is telling how to do this. And that's concepts taken from jazz, because here's a quote from Miles Davis. Okay. He says, it's not the note you play that's the wrong note. It's the note you play afterwards that makes it right or wrong. Yeah. And then who was it? Um, I could look this up real quick, but maybe you know offhand. Who is it? Was it... Um, Maybe it was Miles Davis that said the hardest part about playing is knowing what notes not to play. Mm. That was either either one of the jazz legends yeah. or it was repeated by uh, Win- Winton Marcellus, I think. Okay. But so anyways, I could go back and find that. But well, the concepts yeah. are all the same of what you just said. Yeah, I had is- a saying that I always attributed to Marcus Miller, and I can't say for sure whether I got it where it came from but for some reason in my head it attached to him that was rests are notes too yeah exactly which is a good one and then um our older brother mike who you know likes to rate our show based on how many mangoes we yes. get and i'm hoping for five on this one <laughs> come on five mangoes uh he shared with me he had a desk calendar that had um or something that was music quotes by paul desmond the great sax player for the dave brubeck quartet mm. and here's one for you that um you can't teach someone to improvise, but it can be learned. Hmm. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Yep. Good point. So, what do you got? What do you got? You got anything well, good? just last thing on that. I was okay. as you were talking through um, his notes. It drew a distinction in my mind where I've never been able to explain it to somebody who I'm going to pr- say something and everyone's going to th- not everyone, but half our audience will think I'm crazy. Okay. And that which is, half am I in? Uh, you'll probably agree with this okay. statement. The guitar god. Trey Anastasio, do you know who that is? I do. <laughs> is not a guitar god. Okay. It's my hot take. Because he can play plenty of notes and often does. What I'd never hear him play is a melody. Mm-hmm. I'd never hear him rest. I'd never hear him say, for now I'm going to be back here. Right. It's just all. Blah, 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 blah. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, anyways, the point it being is that you could be recognized as a guitar god, I think. It's still, though, if you don't do what he just espoused, that A, you don't belong in Yacht Rock, which maybe right. that's not a death sentence. But also, right. you can hear the difference when somebody has decided to intentionally say there's you know a, a place for something. There's a place for a run, and there's a place for a rest, and there's a yeah. place to shine, and a place to kind of be in the background. Well, guitar is kind of like keyboards in the sense that, um, unlike a wind instrument, you're forced as a wind instrument player to learn phrasing mm-hmm. because you have to breathe. Yeah, true. Guitar player, keyboard player doesn't have to breathe. They can keep on going. Therefore, their phrases, they don't always have to think. They aren't forced to think phrasing, and they can get lost in these unending phrases. And I think that becomes mentally fatiguing to listen to. Yeah, for sure. All right, well, I had a question for you, uh, an odds and end. Um 
it dawned on me as I listened back to our podcast that we bring up a concept a lot, and I don't think we've ever explained it. All right. And maybe you can explain it. Oh. Which is this offshoot of West Coast sound that you would describe and have described as the Laurel Canyon sound. Yeah. We've never explained what Laurel Canyon is and who belongs in that sound. Well, it's probably not an exact proper use of the term Laurel Canyon because the Laurel Canyon stuff goes back a little further into the 60s and early 70s stuff. But it's that, uh, I hope I get this right because, you know, it's not something that I am an expert on. It's more something that I have kind of seen live around the periphery of Yacht Rock because it sort of predates it. But it's Mm -hmm. that West Coast 60s and 70s stuff that would include people like Crosby, Stills, and Nash or... Uh, Jefferson Starship, um, uh, Neil Young, things like that. And and some of the early, like, Linda Ronstadt stuff goes there. Jackson Brown kind of is a, you know, a descendant of that. He he obviously went well into the 80s and his sound became a little bit different. But even early Eagles harkens back more to that. Mamas and the Papas, America, that stuff all connects more to that, quote, Laurel Canyon sound, which was a sound that was developed out of that area of california a lot more folky yeah yep well i had to do a little research so yeah so laurel canyon is specifically a neighborhood in the hollywood hills okay some say that it kind of its birthplace was when frank zappa decided to relocate there and that whole counterculture thing Mm -hmm. happened um but I was more interested in the evolution of sort of the adjacency to Yacht Rock, which is, as you suggested, like maybe some Linda Ronstadt, Eagles, and um, uh, Jackson Brown sort of la- – I yeah. think they kind of followed that movement and then relocated yes. there themselves. And they weren't so much part of the counterculture as they were just the second – next generation of hippies. That's why I call them a descendant yeah. of it. You yeah. know, And even like Firefall, even though they're not from there, they're – you know, Colorado and all that stuff, but their sound more connects closely to the Laurel Canyon. When you start hearing the acoustic guitar, even the birds were probably early examples of that. Yep. Yep. Well, I'll just give you a, from the uh, Wikipedia page, okay. some of the, you already hit on most of them, but uh, Joni Mitchell, Frank Zappa, Jim Morrison even oh. uh, lived there. Uh, Carol King, the birds, Buffalo Springfield, Canned Heat, um, does mention the Eagles. Uh, Neil Young, Brian Wilson of the Beach Boys was part of that scene, too. Hmm. And then James Taylor, yeah. Jackson Brown, and then here's one, Ned Doheny. Well, that explains the acoustic guitar use. You <laughs> yeah, know? There you go. It, uh, yep. Harry Nilsson, who sometimes gets thrown erroneously in with the Yacht Rockers, uh, and Mickey Dolenz and Peter Tork of the Bunkers. Well, so, sure. Anyways. But, yep. Okay. So that's what, anyways, the whole point of this was to explain. When we're you and I are talking about Laurel Canyon, we're talking about sort of that Eagles L.A. sound. Eagles, Jackson Brown, yeah. more kind of roots rocky and not yeah, The stuff that doesn't quite make yacht rock because it misses just slightly in that area. Correct. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What other odds and ends have you got? Here was another interesting list that we can go through. This made its way around Facebook as well. Um, perhaps you saw it. Was the most recorded drummers of all time. Ooh. Did you see that one? I did not. 
there is no way that I, I never would have guessed who number one is. In fact, number who I thought was number one is way down on this list. Okay, well, hold on. Don't reveal it to me. Okay. Who number one is? Yeah. Um, is it a session guy from the Yacht Rock era? Yes. But I didn't think it would be. I'm thinking like a J or John Robinson? It is not John Robinson, but he is on the list. How far down is he? About halfway down this list. Out so, of how many again? Fifty. Um, there's probably fifteen on this list. Okay. I didn't count them, but I would have thought Hal Blaine, Wrecking Crew. Okay. Yeah. And he is on the bottom of this list. He's the last one on the list at uh, 342 plus. So he's somewhere above 342 rec- known recordings, okay. studio album recordings. Okay. Well, since it's not Picaro, tell us where he is on that list. Well, he probably would have been a lot higher had he not died. He's yes. uh, fifth on the list with 570 plus. Okay. So let me go from the bottom up real quick. So Hal Blaine, Kenny Arnoff. Oh, three, yeah. 357 plus. I can't believe he did that many. We want to exchange tweets, yeah. by the way. That's a fun fact Ooh. about Kenny Arnoff. In case people don't know who Kenny Arnoff is, he's most famously uh, John Cougar's drummer. Right. Full-time drummer. Right. Yep. But obviously a lot more than just that. Yep. Um, Bernard Purdy, 386 plus. Okay. This one, maybe somebody can educate me on because uh, I looked and I tried to find information that this was not who I think it is. Larry Mullen. But the only Larry Mullen I can find is Larry Mullen Jr. of U2. Could it possibly be that he's been on almost 400 recordings? Jeez. I know he played on some of the, like the Daniel Lenoir produced stuff, but hard Don't to know. believe that he yeah. would be above someone like Arnoff or Purdy, but according to this list. I mean, U2's got a pretty big catalog. Um, is it, does it count as songs? Yeah, studio recordings, so it doesn't count just... So with a song, so one yeah. song, I mean, he's got yeah. like a hundred songs just by from U2. Yeah, but it, okay. Who knows? I don't yeah. know. All right, I'll, I'll buzz through a couple of these others. Tony Williams, jazz drummer, Buddy Rich, Jack DeJanette, uh, Matt Chamberlain, Peter Erskine, Harvey Mason, mm. 506 plus, uh, Elvin Jones, another jazz guy, and then there's John Robinson, as you said, 546. Let me ask you, before we get to the top, because we're almost to the top four, yeah. right? So is is uh, Rick Morata one? No. That's a, a big surprise that he was not on here. And uh, what about Steve Gadd? Uh Yes, he is on here. Okay. So we're getting to him. Paul Lime, who is like the the biggest Nashville drummer, um, okay. 563 plus. Vinnie Caliuta. Oh, yeah. Jeff Percaro, 570 plus. Max Roach, 580 plus. And here was one that, a name that I didn't know right off the top of my head. Al Jackson Jr., 659 plus. Hmm. He was a uh, Stax Records guy, mm. Booker T and the MGs, stuff like that. So okay. he would have been like probably the house drummer for Stax, and they, they pumped out a ton of records. Steve Gadd is number two. Steve Gadd's two. At 663 plus. Is number one a name I know? Oh, yeah. So Steve Gadd, get out, get this gap. 663 for Gadd. Number one has 975. Who could that be? I can't believe that. I, I wouldn't have come up with it either, yet it's like... Super obvious? What you know it? Jim Keltner. Oh, yeah. But I'm not sure that that's super obvious, even once it's, you know it. No, but I'm not surprised that that you know name would name. be on the list. So, But to think he has over 300 more recordings than even Steve Gadd. So for people who don't know the name Jim Keltner. Oh, geez. <laughs> Obviously. <laughs> oh, he was um, Jeff Percaro's mentor, number yeah. one. So. Mm-hmm. so session guy. So he's a Yacht Rock session guy. Yeah. We don't bring his name up a lot, though, when we're talking. I know. I, hmm. yeah. 
That's a, a surprise. You got bass players on that list? Nope. Abel Borealis, well, right. number no one. No Rick Murata. No right. um, um, Russ Kunkel. No Russ Kunkel. No. So. Mm-mm. Mike Baird, another big West Coast that, guy. Yeah. Was the one that you mentioned from the Wrecking Crew, was he like the guy? Hal Blaine, some, yeah. He's known as being the drummer on the most number one records of all time. Yeah, okay. I was going to say, I would think there would be yeah. other Wrecking Crew drummers, but if he's the guy. But only like a third of the amount of recordings that Keltner did. That's crazy. Yeah. So, you got well, anything else, or you want me to move on? Uh, go ahead, move on. All right, we're going to get into a little listening here. Okay. One of the things that we've touched on a few times is Yacht Rock's appreciation of the band and appreciation of space, mm. meaning that they didn't always feel the need to fill every moment of a song up with either vocal or a solo, that they would just allow groove to happen. And we, I think we talked about it mostly on um, Steely Dance Asia, yeah, right? right. Well, I wanted to point out a couple that are worth checking out, and we'll give a quick listen to them. So let's start with a friend of the podcast that we interviewed, Mark Jordan. Oh, yeah. Mark Jordan's Lost in the Hurrah, one of the favorite songs that we've talked about on this. This song is really, it's a three and a half minute song. Three, at 3.35, it breaks down to groove and goes all the way to almost five and a half minutes Well, after the vocal has left. And then there's a spot after it at about four minutes where it seems like it's going to kick back in, mm-hmm. and then it doesn't. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of cool. Check it out. And we've got nothing but this cool groove, and then the flugelhorn solo oh, yeah. that sneaks in from uh, Chuck Finley. I, I mean, two minutes of. It is seemingly you, you don't understand why if the, Mark Jordan's name is on the cover and he just lets the band go for two minutes on right. this song, and it's it's not just wandering either. It's really interesting stuff. That's cool. That is cool. I do like the, all the space that he puts yeah. in his uh, solo. The Chuck Finley there. You know, you've written. Ton of songs in your day. I've written some songs in my day. I would never sit down and say, "All right, let's write a two-minute kind of sort of meandering jazz exploration at the end of this tune." So it requires a, like a commitment to the art to yeah do something like this. And I, mean, I understand it in a band context, like for a Toto or right, Steely yeah, yeah. Dan. But when it's a solo artist with essentially session musicians backing them, and I mean, no, right. they were friends of Mark and all that stuff. But that the lead guy would just step aside yeah. for that long. That's what makes yacht rock. Yacht rock. Well, I got another one for you just like it. Okay. Uh, and I think we may have commented on this one before. Um, Bobby Caldwell's What You Won't Do for Love. Two minutes and 45 seconds. The song is done, but there's another two minutes of bed track and horns. No one really stepping out and soloing or anything. Just some horns, some roads, and some... You know, groove. Listen for the subtle little bass accents that come here and out there. They're kind of hiding and you just kind of add some taste to So there's about two minutes of that. But I've never gotten bored of it, ever. No. Like I said about the bass, you know, little accent and stuff. There's all, there's ear candy throughout that. 
not in your face, and it's not a solo, and it's not even a melody that you can even kind of pick out, but it's so cool. No, and there's no histrionics. It makes you wonder why they didn't fade it. doesn't sound like there was ever an in- intention to put something there, like it was another verse and they just didn't have lyrics. It just <laughs> right. sounds like... I don't know, maybe they needed to lengthen it in order, you know, back in the day when you had cassettes and you wanted the first side to be kind of the same length as the second side. I don't even know if that has anything to do mm-hmm. with it, but... How quickly do you think the DJ on radio faded that oh, out? Oh, jeez, yeah. It was, yeah. Uh, that's an odd And then end. we've always talked about uh, Living It Up from Bill the Bounty. We'd covered that one before. Yep. That has about two minutes at the end where Sanborn sort of solos. Sanborn hasn't even appeared in the song at that point. Right. I, right. I made the joke earlier that it's like he showed up late for the session and they were already rolling tape. Yeah. And he's like, all right, I'll throw something in here. Yeah. And then Labounty sort of starts to sing a little bit, but it's really just vocal fills. They never get back into lyric, never get back into a hook. But it's and it's really just the same sort of two chord vamp as the intro, mm-hmm. and it's it's not going anywhere. It's just vamping these same two chords back and forth, and a little bit of Sanborn, a little bit of Labounty. Yep. No hurry to shut the song down, right? right? Well, that's what happens when you're not trying to write a hit for radio. I guess so. Yeah. yeah because true. you know something like that, like we just said, is never going to get heard on radio. <laughs> They'd cut the five minute version down to three minutes and twenty seconds. That was one of my huge pet yeah. peeves. Speaking of odds and ends, back in the day, is the radio edits of perfectly good songs just to get it from four minute and ten down to three minute and forty or something. Yeah, they yeah. take something crucial out. I know. God, <laughs> that's one improvement over the radio era that we have from today. So this you can is true. Hear the whole song. All right, what else? A couple little what ifs. I right. teased you with this before. I, yes. I, and we had said at one point we talked about what if Neil Sean had become a session, a session player yes. instead of dedicating to Journey. So that that's a great what if mm-hmm. because I think that that would be an interesting thing to hear. So, And I think we talked about this on our accompanying radio show when we did... Um, catch of the Day. A Catch of the Day. And... I asked you, what if, what would it sound like? What if Bill Champlin had joined Toto instead of Chicago? Because wasn't he, didn't he almost do that very thing? Well, he's got that Champlin Williams Freestet group going. And we, as we said, uh, Freestet plays a lot like a combination of Graydon and Luke there. So yeah. when you put them together, those three maybe give us a sound of what it would have been like if Champlin had joined Toto. And I've got a song that shows you that. It's called 10 Miles. 10 miles east of El Paso I drive through the night With tears in my eyes As hard as I try Can't let you go Didn't he almost become a member like didn't they ask him to become a member before they got uh um there was michael mcdonald that got oh maybe that's invited. what it was yeah well that, now we don't have to play what if we know what it would sound like it's true here's one for you um prince yes heard of him. what if he decided he was going to be a session guitarist Ooh. <laughs> because early on in his like his first couple albums his lead guitar work was much more like the anthemic rock style you could almost mistake him for Graydon or Lukather 
at times. Whereas later on, sonically, he got into a whole different area. He mm-hmm. was probably channeling more Hendrix and yeah, stuff like that. Sure. But let me play you one of his solos from early on. And you tell me if you think he was influenced by Graydon or Lukather on this. Tell me about what you think on the solo of Why You Want to Treat Me So Bad. Certainly sounds West Coasty. Yeah, it was recorded in Burbank. Was that it? Album was recorded. Oh, there you in go. It's so magic go. over there. Yeah. Um, I'll tell you what, though, the end of that solo re- is reminiscent of going back to your Jake Graydon thing. Uh, the guitar solo to "Sailor Mine" off the Christopher Cross. Remember, <laughs> he go. does that, yeah. and then he's yeah. got it in harmony. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So yes, I guess the answer is yes. Oh my God, that's so cool. All right, uh, here's a, one other question. That This goes back, remember when we had Eric Maddox on? We did the uh, New Coast uh, Breeze. Yep. And we kind of came away from that. He had teased us with a question, and we couldn't exactly remember how he sort of phrased it. It was something that he thought would be interesting to unpack, mm. not necessarily a question. And it took me forever, and I finally pieced it together in my brain what he was putting forth. So this was the theory. Or the observation, his observation, and then he said, well, let's unpack that. And it was the roots and the core of everything that is Yacht Rock grew out of the guys from Toto Mm -hmm. and Steely Dan. Mm -hmm. Yet, when we talk about Yacht Rock going forward, we talk about it in terms of Kenny Loggins and Michael McDonald. True. I don't know what there is to unpack, but it's extremely true and interesting. Hmm. Uh, it's, yeah, it is, because you, if you did one of those ancestry things, you know, and applied mm-hmm. it to Yacht Rock, there would be this weird fork. I'm not sure how sense. they would connect directly. No. Other than Picaro. Yeah, a little bit on the solo album from Mike. Because he kind of yeah. touches all that stuff. Yeah. It's interesting. But, but you're it, right, because it, it, he said there was like these two strains. There was the Toto strain and the Steely Dan strain. But now we talk about it in terms of Michael McDonald yeah. and Kenny Lawrence. Yeah, interesting. It is interesting. So, And then in hindsight, again, that Jeff Picard was the one consistent thread throughout all of it. It touches every single mm-hmm. thing you just mentioned, I think, right? Yeah. Loggins? Uh, that's what the, what's the question mark mm-hmm. in my head. Well, I guess we maybe we can ponder that. And, mm-hmm. yeah. you know, we, have a, we have a whole off-season to ponder it, I guess, right? We do. Yep, you're right. Well... Every good yachting season has to come to a close. It does. Winter in the north. Time to shrink wrap. Mm-hmm. Um, a couple programming notes, speaking okay. of odds and ends. So we're going to take a uh, short break for the uh, holidays. Yeah. We'll be back after the first of the year with some new episodes. Uh, next week, we're going to run, um, because it's Christmas season, right? Got it. So yeah. you got to pull out all the reruns. Right. So we're going to rerun last year's Christmas special. Right. Um, I'm gonna We're going to drop that earlier in the week because it would come out normally, I think, on the... 22nd, so I'm moving that up to Monday. I'll drop it early okay. if you want to hear that and get in the uh, Christmas spirit, find out who's nyadi and who's nice. That's right. Um, and then after the first of the year, we've got, uh, we don't have our, our schedule set, but we do have confirmations from some cool guests. We do. Uh, you've been speaking with Bruce Blackman. give it away? Yep. Yeah. Bruce Blackman. From Starbuck. Yeah. Pretty much is Starbuck as is. we know it, right? Yep. Um, he's going to be on. Um, I've been... 
corresponding. This is amazing that I'm going to use these words in a sentence, and it's true. I've been corresponding with Tommy Taylor, yeah, the drummer from Christopher Cross, mm-hmm. and he wants to come on and fill in some of the gaps, some of the questions we were unsure of when we did the Christopher Cross album deep dive, yeah, some behind the curtain stuff. Yeah. yeah, like for example, did you even know something? He was quick to point out is that Christopher Cross was the name of the band. It was never, <laughs> I know, a Christopher Cross. I mean, he, that's his name, right? But it's almost in the way Van Halen is Van Halen. Yeah. It's not just Eddie Van Halen right. or Alex. But and so there was no concept of bringing in session guys because they had a band. Michael happened. Michael O'Mardian happened to be part of it, and of course, Tommy Taylor was the drummer. So he wants to, you know, some about like you said behind the scenes stuff. So that'll be cool. Mm-hmm. Okay, um, we've gotten indications that we'll be able to get. Uh, Little River Band, members of Ambrosia. So it's going to be an exciting season. Yes, yes. And we're going to kick it off with, how did this whole thing die? You know, the day the music died? Yep, the day the yacht sank. The day the yacht sank. What happened after 1984 that were like, this whole thing just completely went out of vogue suddenly, and now it's coming back eventually now. So Good. With that, I think we can move on to the last lightning round of the season. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. So, I'll let you go first. Okay. Uh, I don't know how it could be theme appropriate considering this. Well, I have one more what if. Ooh, okay. And only you can answer this one. Oh, boy. What if David Foster never turned evil? Ooh. <laughs> I already threw him under the yacht oh, earlier, okay. didn't I? The- I think it might sound a little bit like something like this. Um, this is a song from 1976. It was written by Bill Champlin. I just found out it was also recorded by Sons of Champlin and Pointer Sisters with Richard Perry producing. But the version that David Foster produced goes back to that wonderful J.P. Morgan album. And the song I want to play is Here is Where Your Love Belongs. We may have to do a uh, Who Wore It Best on that and compare those three versions down yes. the road. Yes. Well, do we have confirmation that he literally became evil? <laughs> I'm only going on what you're saying. <laughs> All right. Uh, okay. That's very good. Very good. Well, I remember earlier this year we did sort of a lightning round within a lightning round on Paul Davis. Right. Oh, yeah. Um, we did not include this one. Okay. So I want to get your take. I just love this tune. I think you were a default yes on Paul Davis, if I recall correctly. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree that he's at or outside the perimeter. He's right out there, but um, there's a lot of the characteristics of him in general that I associate with Yacht Rock. They'll make, you know, it's a song by song basis. So All right, well, what, what about got? this song? What's your basis for Sweet Life? Come true. 
My initial reaction to that was always a yes. I'm not sure I've been talked out of it. It probably doesn't have enough jazzy and R&B elements. But overall, I think it still puts me there. Um, so I, I'm a yes on that one. Yeah, I am too. I think going back to being a default yes, I'm just a default yes. I mean, obviously not everything, but that one for sure. And I just like his sound generally. Yeah, Whether it's technically exactly. Yacht Rock, I don't know, yeah. but its sound is cool. All right. Got a buried treasure? I do have a buried treasure. Nice. Okay, I'm going to do a little foreshadowing. Since if you're listening in real time, this is the week before our Christmas rerun, mm-hmm. right? Um, so I'm going to give you a Christmas tune. And you tell me if this is not a buried treasure. It's Hall and Oates. Okay. So Hall and Oates is probably not yet. But I discovered when we were putting together that Christmas episode, this awesome Hall and Oates Christmas album from... Like 2019 or something, wasn't it? It's fairly new. 2019, yeah. yeah. But one of my favorite songs that just hit me instantly feels like it could be right from the 70s and 80s. So this is way off the map, even though we're not in off the map. So, But A Buried Treasure is the Daryl Hall and John Oates Christmas album called Home for Christmas. And here's my favorite tune off of it. Every day will be like a holiday. Yep, I listened to that one actually today because I was also preparing for our uh, Catch of the Day version. And that that's hit me as it has a lot of the early Hall & Oates vibe, almost with a little bit of Southern rock mixed yeah. in, a little gospel-y thing. It's really nice. It's It looks like, it, or to me, it sounds like it was intentionally recorded to be an homage to that era and for not sure. sound like it should be relevant in 2019. Agreed. And that's why I love it so yep. much. So. Yep. Oh, speaking of Christmas. Yep, so we were. Last night, I'm watching the movie Scrooged, you know, with Bill Murray. Mm-hmm. And there's a scene where Bill Murray's character runs out into the street, and it's like downtown New York, I think, okay. um, you know, at night. Yep. And he walks by this band of like street hobos performing, uh, you know, music for tips. Okay. And I realize I look at him, I'm like, oh my God, it's David Sanborn, <laughs> Paul Schaefer. Oh, wow. Miles Davis hmm. and Larry Carlton. Whoa. How yachty is that? About a seven. Sweet cameos. Anyway, I digress. But uh, what do you, uh, yeah, what do you got? Well, my buried treasure, treasure comes from a very old Facebook messenger way, way back. Listener Darren sent me something. And again, trying to find the right place to fit it in. It was after we did our uh, Mark Jordan interview episode. He said that... Um, he said that he had met Mark in person when a Canadian supergroup called Lunch at Allen's mm. played uh, a concert in his town of Chilliwack, British Columbia. So apparently Mark was part of that supergroup. But another member of that supergroup was a guy named Ian Thomas. Yeah. And Ian Thomas has a 1981 album that listener Darren calls uh, a recommended listen. The album is called The Runner. Um he says that Ian's music from the 70s and 80s has that West Coast AOR vibe to it, and I wish more channels like yourself would feature him. His biggest hit is from 1973 called Painted Ladies, but the one I want to play comes from the album The Runner that he was talking about, and it's the same as uh, Santana's song from the Shango album, but Ian Thomas actually wrote it. This is Hold On. Hold on, nothing to say. 
Hunt Buried Treasure. I'll say. Yeah. I had no idea that Santana's version was a cover. I didn't either. Until and now. His came out, what, two years later? Yeah, this was 81. Santana's was 83. Uh, yeah. They sound <laughs> very similar. Very I wonder similar. how that song makes its way to Santana, and then he totally popularizes it. Yeah. And, hmm. Maybe it was like a modest hit in Canada, and Santana was touring Canada and heard it on the radio. I have no idea. Huh. Interesting. Well, I'm going to, in a similar vein, share with you something that we both uncovered in an earlier episode. Okay. And that was, uh, somehow we got talking about, do you remember why we were talking about Sad Eyes by Robert John? Why? I don't remember why. Well, either do I. I oh, I know why. It was in the boat? tournament. It was oh, in the Yacht yeah. Rock there tournament. Yes. Yeah. So we had to go find that song to plug it in, and you discovered by mistake that it's credited to Ambrosia for some reason. So yeah, we keep there is actually an Ambrosia version, but there are versions like from compilations that are Robert, that John's, are Robert version. John's version credited to Ambrosia, yeah. which we had to trace back to this 2017 cover from Ambrosia yeah. of Sad Eyes, and that's my off the map. Very good. Yeah. Yeah. Would have never discovered that had it not been by mistake. So, so strange. That, yeah. Yeah. Anyway. All right. Well, I still got to do my off the map. Okay. Okay. Uh, you familiar with the uh, electronic music duo Blank and Jones? No. Yeah. Uh-uh. Yeah. Unless you're into electronic music. They were, they were big time. They kind of started back in the late 90s and they were part of the early like trance and progressive house movement with, along with like Paul Oakenfold and DJ Tiesto. Okay. Like that. They were, yep. they were, they're really popular in that. Thing. Well, for my off the map, I have a Blank and Jones version of the Bobby Caldwell hit, What You Won't Do for Love. I guess you wonder where I've been. I searched to find love within. I came back to let you know I think for you. So nice chilled out down tempo. Yes. There is actually a, an up tempo remix of that too, dance floor BPM. But uh, that chilled version is kind of cool. And where is this artist from? Blank and Jones. Yeah. So they were from Germany. Huh. Do you remember earlier? Uh, I think you discovered and brought it off the map as well. Was Go West did a version of that <laughs> yeah. song? Yeah. Everybody loves that song. I guess. I guess so. Yeah. Good tune. All right. Well, now can we do the final odd and end? Yeah. yeah. Okay. okay. So yes, so Alex sent us this factoid. Oh, so uh, so this is an odd and an end. I don't know if it's it's an odd end, it, or is it, it, it is would a, be an odd ending. Okay, that's for sure. But that we're putting good. it in the middle, not at the end. Uh, Alexander Graham Bell. Mm. So he invented the telephone. Did you not know that? That is not the factoid. That he thought the recipient of the phone call should answer with a certain word. And Thomas Edison said, "I don't know why Thomas Edison has to say." Wasn't this. he? A, didn't he invent the phonograph? Yeah, well, right. So that ties it in. Okay, that does. That makes it yachty. Uh, Thomas Edison <laughs> said, no, 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 no. You, you should have the other person just answer simply, hello. Okay, right. Did you know what Alexander Graham Bell wanted the word to be? No. Ahoy. With or without polloi. And that's what you call an odd end. Stop. 